Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. This is the word of God. I want to pray one more time. Is my mic on, guys? Check, check, check. There we go. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge your holy love for us. And we just sung it, but I want to say it again now in prayer. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I ask that right now you would help us to hear your word. Give us faith. Give us repentance. Give us obedience. Give us light from your Holy Spirit. Pray as as I preach, Lord, that every word of my mouth would be faithful and true and glorifying to you and helpful to everybody who hears this word. And I pray that you give us grace to receive with submissive hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Do I need this mic, guys? Okay, there we go. The main point of this psalm is apparent in the first three words. The text starts with these words, the Lord reigns. Everybody say, the Lord reigns. And I remember as a kid hearing about God reigning. And I remember growing up in church singing the song, Awesome God. Anybody sing that Rich Mullins song growing up? Okay, several, several. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. And every time I heard that God reigns, I had a picture of God in the sky and of refreshing rain falling down on the earth, water making the grass grow. It is true that God sends the rain in that way, but that's not what this word means. So kids... Listen up, it's a different word. Not R-A-I-N, reign, this is R-E-I-G-N. What it means is that God rules as king over all creation. So everybody say, God is the king. And Psalm 99 is one of the enthronement psalms. It's a section of psalms in the 90s there that are celebrating this fact. Celebrating it's really good news that God is king. And that God's kingdom is coming to heal the world. This theme of the kingdom of God is one of the main themes of the Bible. When John the Baptist comes preaching to get us ready for Jesus, he says, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus comes preaching, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus stands up in the Sermon on the Mount and describes what life is like for his disciples, he says of them, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of God is a really important theme in the Bible. As a matter of fact, we could summarize the Bible, the whole story, as the story of God's kingdom coming. If we wanted to take two minutes, we could do it kind of like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He reigned over His creation as King. He ruled. Which means all of creation was subject to His authority, which is why all creation was good. And was filled with the joy and peace and life of God. And at the pinnacle of His creation, He created human beings, male and female, in His own image. Which means... We were made for a relationship with God and to be vice regents ruling with God. You know what a vice regent is? No, you don't. A vice president helps the president rule, right? And regent's a word for king. So a vice regent helps the king rule. Human beings were made to participate with God in his rule and his reign, to bring his peace into the world for his glory. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read that, we read that the first human beings rebelled against the authority of God. They tried to exercise their God-given power autonomously instead of submitting their authority and power to the higher authority of God the King. And that sin, that rebellion against God the King is what brought so much evil and pain and chaos into the world. But right there in Genesis, we already see signs that God the King had not given up on His creation and He had not given up on rebellious human beings either. That God the King has determined to set things right. And He has determined not just to defeat his, the people that had rebelled against Him, but to redeem them and reconcile them. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God's grace at work, setting things right and pointing us forward to Jesus. So that when Jesus comes, the person of Jesus is God the King coming among us in a new way to set things right. At the cross of Jesus, the Son of God bears all the consequences for our sin and our evil, so that we can be forgiven and reconciled with God. Think about that for a second. Think about what that means. We rebelled against the king. And the king had made a law saying, if you rebel against me, you got to die. It was a just law. But then the king in his mercy comes and reveals his mercy and fulfills his justice at the same time. By on the cross, bearing the death that we rebels deserved so that rebels could be reconciled and could receive the gift of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that glorious? And then the resurrection of Jesus that we're going to celebrate in Easter at the, on Easter at the end of this Lenten season is God the King rose from the grave. Victorious. And when He rose from the grave, He jump-started the renewal of all creation. After Jesus rose, He ascended to heaven and He sat down on what? He sat down on a throne. His kingdom has now been established in a new way. And as a sign of that new power, he sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is God, the king coming in person to live among us, to purify us, to teach us of God's love and to empower us now to be agents of God's kingdom. God has a mission for you. If you trust in Christ, you're a citizen of God's kingdom. You're an agent of God's kingdom sent out with the power and authority of the king to bring God's salvation and peace and life into the world. But we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. The world is not yet as it should be. And when Jesus comes back, the king returns. All evil is wiped out and defeated forever. And all those who have turned from evil to trust in Christ receive not only forgiveness and reconciliation, but resurrected bodies to reign with Jesus in a new creation. 
And that's the end of the biblical story. The whole story of the Bible is the story of God's kingdom. Everybody say, the Lord reigns. So if we want to understand God, if we want to understand the Bible, if we even want to understand who we are and the point of our lives, we need to think about this question, which is my question for us today to think about as we study this psalm. What kind of king is God? You might want to write that down in your notes, in your bulletin. What kind of king is God? This psalm is a celebration of God's kingdom, but it's a celebration that gives us a lot of information. God's truth to enlighten our minds and then warm our hearts for worship. God's truth to guide our path, to teach us how to live. We need to know what kind of king God is so that we know how to worship him and how to trust him and how to love him and how to obey him and how to bear witness to him. What kind of king is God? The psalm says a lot of things about that, and I'm going to go through some of them and and talk about it. First thing to say from this psalm is God is king over all cultures and every ethnic group. The psalm emphasizes that. Let me show it to you right there in verse one. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. You might circle that word peoples, plural peoples. That means people groups, ethnic groups, cultural groups, nations. Then look at the first part of verse two. The Lord is great in Zion. So Zion is Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. That's where the people of Israel, God's chosen people, worship him. But the text goes on to make it clear, though God has a special plan for Israel and he revealed himself to Israel. God has never been a tribal deity or a national deity. He's Lord of all nations. And it goes on to say he is exalted over all the peoples. There's that word again. Everybody say peoples. He's exalted over all the peoples, every ethnic group, every culture. Let them praise your great and awesome name. God had a special purpose for Israel. He still does have a special purpose for Israel, but he's always been the God of every ethnic group. He's always loved every ethnic group. What does it mean that he's exalted over all the nations, over all the peoples? Well, it means a lot of things. We could spend two hours just unpacking that point in the light of the rest of the scripture. But let me just give you a few things that it means. It means God created ethnic, every ethnic group and every culture on purpose. Okay? So that means God created your ethnic group. That means when He fearfully and wonderfully made you and knit you together in your mother's womb, He made you particular and specific in your specific ethnic cultural location. And that's good because everything God makes is good. That also means He makes, He made every ethnic group and every cultural group that's different than you. And he made all those people and those ethnic and cultural groups in a particular specific way for his glory. This means cultural diversity is God's idea. God is infinite. We are finite, which means one person or one culture or one ethnicity can reflect the goodness of God in a beautiful way. But ten cultures and ten ethnicities that know God can reflect God's glory in a bigger and better way. And 50 cultures and ethnicities perfected and transformed and purified by God's grace, can reflect God's goodness in a bigger and better way. See, cultural diversity is God's idea for our joy and for his glory, because every ethnic and cultural group is filled with people made in the image of God who reflect his image in particular and specific ways. This also means God loves every ethnic group and every cultural group, and God doesn't play favorites. Sometimes we play favorites. Sometimes we love some groups and don't love other groups. The story of human history is a story of prejudice and 
ethnocentrism and war along ethnic and cultural lines. But God has a better idea, doesn't he? Our God is the God of all peoples. It means not only that he created all of them and that he loves all of them, but he's committed to redeeming every ethnic group. You See, if we want to fill out this picture, we've got to acknowledge that every ethnic and cultural group, as well as every individual human, is good and bad in distinctive ways. What do I mean by that? I'm good and bad, aren't I? I'm good because I'm made in the image of God and I'm loved by God, but I'm bad because I got sin in me. Human beings are complicated. You're good and bad. You're good because you're made in the image of God and God loves you and you reflect his goodness, but you struggle with sin. And that's true of every human culture as well. But in our diversity, in our specificity, it is true that all of us reflect God's goodness in unique ways. But also, I haven't found any culture that's not tainted by sin. Have you? And each different culture tends to have its own particular cultural idols or sins that that we're prone towards, which means when the gospel of Jesus Christ enters into any culture, it dethrones the idols and gets rid of everything evil and oppressive and unjust and false in that culture. But it doesn't wipe out that culture. Instead, what it does is redeem it and perfect it and cultivate all of its potential for the glory of God. He's going to get rid of the badness in every culture and bring to fulfillment the goodness of every culture. Cultural diversity is not something that woke modern people made up. It's God's idea. He created it and he's going to redeem it for his glory. Now, there's a lot of practical implications of this fact that God reigns over all cultures. First of all, for everybody in here, you should notice that you are not just default normal. You have a culture. You have an ethnicity. We all tend to think we're normal and everybody else is weird, right? And we tend to put like it's reflected in our stores, like there's the regular section and then the ethnic section. Majority culture goes to the regular section. But listen, majority culture, we are an ethnicity, right? All of us have an ethnicity. All of us have culture. And so we can both celebrate and interrogate our own cultural identity. Also, culture and ethnicity are fluid and complicated and dynamic, which means there's probably seven or eight ethnicities in this room. But actually, some of us got two or three or four or five just in ourselves, right? So we've got layers of cultural and ethnic influence and we can celebrate that. It's beautiful. It's good. If you have guilt or shame associated with your cultural and ethnic identity, you don't need to because God made you what you are for his glory and it's good. But also you need to be aware of the idols and the temptations that might uniquely affect you so that you can dethrone those, not because you're ashamed of who you are, but because you're thankful for who God made you to be. You don't want that to be warped by sin. Another implication of this is we need to learn to appreciate value and learn from the unique reflection of God and people different than you. Listen, friends, diversity in multi-ethnic church isn't beautiful if we just come sit in the pews in the same room on Sunday morning. It's beautiful when we get into deep relationship with one another and we learn from each other and we learn from churches that have a different ethnic makeup than our own congregation. We need to embrace the discomfort of difference. Have you noticed that whenever you go get around a group of people who are different than you, it's uncomfortable at first. But if you'll stick with it, there's a lot of beauty to be discovered. I've had this experience so many times in my life as a as a Christian and as a minister. I've had the opportunity to go to different countries and be involved in different places. And every time I go, it's uncomfortable and it's beautiful. 
and it helps me grow. I remember as an OU, uh, OU graduate student, the African Christian Fellowship, was, which was mostly people from Ghana and from Nigeria, invited me to come speak. They wanted me to be involved in their ministry. And when I went, I loved it. It was so beautiful. The way they worshiped God, the way they sung, the way they danced, reflecting God's glory in their particular culture. The uncomfortable part is they didn't just want me to watch and then speak. They wanted me to participate, which made me feel uncomfortable. Some of you all know I can't dance, okay? <laughs> God has given me many abilities and many non-abilities, and that's on the non-ability list. I can't dance. But those brothers and sisters took me by the hand and made me dance, and it was uncomfortable, and they laughed at me, but it made them happy, and it made me happy, and I found God in new ways, right? Sometimes we need to embrace the discomfort in order to see the beauty of God in new ways. Don't make an idol out of your culture. But also don't be ashamed of your culture. Embrace your culture and embrace the beauty of God reflected in other cultures. Also, freely share the gospel with every culture. Because when we share the gospel with a new culture, Jesus comes. And he's not trying to make those people like us. If they're from a different culture than us, he's trying to make them like Jesus in a unique and distinctive way. And if they come to know Christ, it's not just that we're going to teach what we know about Jesus. We're going to learn new stuff about Jesus from them. Because they're going to reflect his glory in a new way. He's the king of all peoples, of all cultures. Let's move on. We haven't got out of verse 1 yet. Next point is from verse 1b. God is king over all creation, including invisible spiritual powers. Man, I want us to think about this one today. He's king over all creation, including invisible spiritual powers. Look at the second half of verse 1. It says, the Lord sits enthroned upon the cherubim. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. It's easy to read a verse like that and just keep going and not say, what? We should say, what? Everybody say, cherubim. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Now, the second half of that verse is a metaphor or a symbol about God coming with his, on his throne with his kingdom. And, and there's like an earthquake that is symbolizing his power, is shaking things up and making everything new. But it's also expressing something that all of Scripture testifies to, which is that the realm of nature responds to the presence of God because God is its king. Just keep reading the Bible. You'll find the trees clapping their hands and the stones crying out. Creation is God's creation. Nature is God's nature. Okay, so anybody ever looked at the beauty of the night sky or seen the majesty of a waterfall or the beauty of a little flower and thought that's good? Guess what? That's good because God made it. So it's a little bit like God. and It's designed to point us towards God. The goodness is from God. And on a week like this, we're reminded that though God has made us responsible stewards of his creation and ecological stewardship is a Christian value, we are not kings of creation. Because in the current state of affairs, when Creation is marred by sin and humans are rebelling against God. We have frequent reminders that we cannot control creation. And if we start in our arrogance thinking we're mastering nature, history has a way of bringing pandemics and blizzards to humble us, doesn't it? Which also is a reminder to us that we're still waiting for the king to come. Because when Jesus returns, no more people dying from tsunamis. No more people dying from pandemics, no more blizzards knocking out the power grid in Texas. None of that stuff happening anymore. But the beauty of creation will be perfected for the glory of God. We're talking about the second half of the verse. That's nature. But the first half of the verse, he sits enthroned on what? 
cherubim. If you do search for the word cherubim in your little Bible app, you will see that word show up in dozens of verses throughout the scripture. And the cherubim are one of many categories of spiritual beings. Friends, we need to enlarge our vision of reality because our secular, skeptical, Western materialist worldview has shrunk it such that we only see a tiny fraction of reality. In the Bible, there's not just angels and demons. There's lots of categories of spiritual beings. Cherubim and seraphim and elemental spirits and authorities and powers and thrones. There's all sorts of spiritual reality going on. The cherubim in particular first show up in Genesis 3 and then show up many times. And when they're depicted, they're sometimes called the cherubim or just the living creatures. And they are depicted as guardians of the presence of God's throne who stand at the border of this throne room, which is the center of God's holy presence, keeping anything unholy out. The cherubim are depicted as hybrid creatures with wings. It's not like the little baby cherubs you see on the cards. okay? not not the whole Hallmark cherub version. They're mighty hybrid creatures, oxes and humans and lions mixed together, but with wings that are glorious and beautiful and majestic and fearsome. And it seems to be that in their persons, they're embodying the combined majesty of the whole realm of creation. And as that hybrid creature is embodying the combined glory and majesty of all creation, It is worshiping God and reminding us that all creation was designed to worship God and that we sinners must be made holy to come into his presence. That's just one of the categories of spiritual beings. I was just reflecting this week on how we need our worldview to get more biblical when it comes to this stuff. I could tell you I grew up having the advantage of a family that loved me and taught me the Bible and took me to church and So I knew there were spiritual beings in the Bible, and I even sometimes heard stories about spiritual stuff that happened over there somewhere in some other continent besides where I live. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of knowing the Bible is true, but not really quite feeling like it's real. Anybody ever been there? And then sometimes life reminds you that the whole Bible is real. And over the course of life of trying to live on mission at different times, God has taken me into dark places where people were struggling and in pain and in bondage. And I've just experienced the reality of spiritual beings and of spiritual warfare. I could tell you a lot of stories. I'll just mention one. One of the first times I experienced this kind of a, a power encounter with actual spiritual beings. Not the first, but one of the first was uh, years ago, probably 15 years ago. I was working with a ministry and a person had come in that they were needing financial assistance to avoid being homeless. But then this person said, I also need you to pray with me. There's dark spirits that are tormenting me. And this person did not seem unstable. Didn't seem to be a mental health issue. They were saying there's dark spirits that are troubling me. I need you to pray with me. And some of the other folks asked me to come pray. And as we began to pray, this voice started coming out of this person filled with hatred and evil and speaking. It was coming out of this person, but speaking about this person in a third person and saying she's worthless She's horrible. She doesn't deserve to live. I'm going to make her kill herself. You can't have her. Is what this voice was saying as we began to pray. And my little Baptist self doesn't know what to do sometimes with life when it comes your way. You know, it's like, oh, man, nothing in Bible drill told me what to do in this situation. But we began to pray and and read scripture and in the name of Jesus, command this evil spirit to leave. And it. It started responding and reacting, but it was resisting. And as we were doing this, there was a little godly woman in her 70s who just 
began to be filled with the Spirit and to sing a simple praise song of praise to Jesus. And then all the rest of us there started singing that praise song. And this demonic voice that had been saying, no, no, I won't leave. You can't have her. As we began to sing praise to Jesus, did not like that name being glorified. And the voice began to say, stop it, stop it. And then began to say, okay, 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 I'll leave. And then we commanded it to leave in the name of Jesus. And it left. And this woman confessed faith in Jesus. She was baptized. Last I heard from her was several years ago. She was uh, the, had never had a recurrence of these experiences and was walking with God doing great. Now, that, that was probably about the second or third time that, that I had an experience like that. It was not the last. And I went and found some mentors that actually knew what they were doing with this stuff to help me learn it. But here's the thing. Those kinds of experiences woke me up to the fact that the Bible is not just true. It's real. Everybody say this is real. Now, I could keep telling you stories about this kind of thing, but I'm not going to because some of you already just decided that your pastor is crazy. Some of you in this room are thinking he's crazy. And some of you definitely on the Internet, Internet people. Some of my secular, skeptical friends are watching this thinking we knew we knew he was crazy. And now they think he definitely is crazy. And what I would say to you is this. First, I'm going to grant the possibility. It's possible that I'm crazy. Okay, I'll grant that hypothesis. But here's an alternative hypothesis. Maybe. Your skeptical reaction to the possibility that there's any aspect of reality beyond what you can see through a telescope or a microscope is not, in fact, rational, but is a secular, Western, narrow cultural prejudice that makes you incapable of dealing with reality in its fullness. There's another possible experience. That's not just for atheists. That's for Christians, too. As a matter of fact, I was reading this week the work of a New Testament scholar from Ghana named Daniel K. Darko, who has written a lot about the reality of spiritual beings in the Bible and in uh, the spirituality of what's happening with the explosion of Christianity in Africa. And as he's written about that, he's talked about sometimes having to mediate the worldview clashes that come not between Christians and non-Christians, but between Western Christians and non-Western Christians about this very issue. And he's not bashing on Western people. He actually says Western and non-Western Christians need to learn from each other. But he did say that whereas Western people tend to look down on anybody who believes in anything supernatural as superstitious and naive, that non-Western Christians tend to think that Western people with this narrow, secular, materialistic ideology that we've internalized uncritically are have blinders on. He's not talking about People that it would be wise to dismiss as naive. He's talking about sophisticated, intelligent, educated people, scientists, engineers, doctors from other parts of the world who have come to know Jesus. And he summarizes it like this. Let me just read you one sentence. Christians in the global south tend to portray Westerners who do not share their worldview as ignorant of spiritual matters and their consequences. Both sides tend to think the other is ignorant, but maybe there's some truth in that. Accusation. Maybe our view is too narrow. Let me read you another few sentences. This is from the anthropologist Homer G. Barnett. And he says, for the Westerner, faith in and commitment to science gives humans control over the material universe. We like that. We like it that way. Although sometimes reality comes and disabuses us of our illusion of control, doesn't it? He goes on to say, Charles Kraft, so here's one anthropologist quoting another. Charles Kraft describes the situation well. 
Western societies passed through the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, and a wide variety of ripples and spinoffs from these movements. The result, God and the church were dethroned. That's a sentence we're thinking about. God and the church were dethroned, and the human mind came to be seen as Savior. It is ignorance, not Satan, we are to fight. And our weapons are human minds and technology. God, if there be a God, only helps those who do it all themselves. Thus, by the 19th century, God had become irrelevant to most Westerners. Christians in the West then struggle to combine a secular worldview and the God of the Bible. Spiritual powers and their place in the universe are given very little attention or relevance in daily living. End quote. Now, I don't know if I've convinced you or not, but I'm just pausing to try and get you to notice the word cherubim right here to say that when we talk about the kingdom of God and the authority of God over all of reality and then when we search the scripture to ask what kind of king God is and it tell us he's the king over all creation including invisible spiritual powers we should be alerted to the fact that reality is bigger and more complex and awesome than what we might yet think the world is bigger than what our western skepticism has taught us to imagine There are more evil powers at work, but there are also more good powers at work. And by the way, one of the things the Bible makes very clear is that there's more invisible, created, good spiritual beings than bad ones. Isn't that encouraging? But it also makes the point that all the bad ones who have rebelled against God are subject to the authority of God. And it's only a matter of time. Their power has already been broken at the cross. And it's only a matter of time before they're completely under his feet. God is Lord over all nations. He's Lord over all creation, including invisible spiritual powers. Maybe I'll pick up the pace since we haven't got out of 1B yet. Third, what kind of king is God? God is a holy king. He's a holy king. Look at verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Skip down to verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Skip down again to verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Three times it says He's holy. Everybody say, holy, holy, holy. So often in Scripture we find this threefold affirmation of God's holiness. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah gets a vision of the throne room of God, there are seraphim surrounding him covering their faces with their wings because even they cannot gaze upon the center of God's presence. But what they're crying out in Isaiah 6 is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Or if you skip over to Revelation chapter 4, the living creatures are surrounding God and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The threefold repetition, holy, 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 is for emphasis. But also in the New Testament, It becomes clear that it's emphasizing the threefold name of the Holy God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. So what does it mean to say that our God is holy? To say that God is holy means that God is absolutely unique. God alone is God and there is no rival. There is no one who could be compared to Him. He's one of a kind. He's not in a category that is shared with others. He's absolutely unique. As creator, he's totally different from any created thing. Okay? We have a beginning, but God has no beginning. He eternally exists. We are mortal and our bodies die, but God is life itself. He cannot die. Our knowledge and power are very limited, but God's knowledge and power are infinite. He's in a category by himself. 
God's holiness also speaks to his absolute goodness, his moral purity. There is no mixture of any evil in him. We talked about earlier that every one of us human beings and every human culture is a mix of good and bad, but not so with God. He's absolutely holy. He's absolutely pure. He's absolutely good, which is why one of the common symbols for God's holiness in the Bible is fire. Think of the burning bush. Think of the pillar of fire leading the people of Israel. Fire is likened to holiness because fire simultaneously attracts and gives life, but also threatens us. Fire, by its movement and its color and its warmth and its light, attracts us. But if you get too close in touch, what happens? You get burned. God's goodness is the source of light. It's the source of life. It's beautiful. It attracts us to God. But the problem is, when we come into God's presence, we come bringing a whole lot of sin with us. Don't we? And nothing unholy, nothing sinful, nothing wicked can dwell in the presence of God. So God's holiness... The fact that God the King is holy is good news, but it should also make us tremble and think. And the only solution to this tension is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what the gospel of Jesus is, is the Holy One coming among us and bearing in Himself the consequences of our sin so that by grace we can be reconciled to God and He brings us into the presence of God's holy fire. But by grace, because of our union with Jesus, we don't find it the fire of wrath that destroys us. We find it the the fire of love that purifies and perfects us and transforms us. So trust in Jesus. God is the King of all peoples. God's the king over all creation, including invisible spiritual powers. God is a holy king. Next point. God is a king who rules in justice, equity, and righteousness. Everybody say justice, equity, righteousness. We see those verses or those words starting in verse four. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Those words, righteousness, justice, and equity, go together a lot in the Bible. What do they mean? If you put them together, they mean a lot of things. They mean, for example, that God treats all people with dignity. God is loving and kind and generous to every ethnic group and to every individual person on the planet. It means God doesn't play favorites. God cannot be corrupted by bribes or flatteries. God doesn't need it. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our praise. He cannot be corrupted. We can manipulate one another. It's not a good idea, but we can. But we cannot manipulate God. He's incorruptible. It means God hates oppression. He hates it when we all use our power to control and dominate one another. He says to parents, use your power to bless your kids. Husbands, use your power to bless your wife. Says the teachers, use your power to bless your students. To government leaders, use your power to bless the people. Don't use it to control and dominate and oppress. It means he hates oppression and he actively works to end all forms of oppression. And he calls us to join him in that work. God's righteousness also speaks to his moral integrity. God is a God of truth. He's faithful. He always keeps his word and he wants us to be people of moral integrity. It means God relates rightly to everybody in the way that is fitting and proper. Now, this knowledge that God is righteous and just and equitable 
should make us really happy that the king of the universe is like that. Aren't you glad? Because if we look around at the world, there's some good leaders out there who are somewhat righteous and just and equitable. But there's nobody who's perfectly righteous, just and equitable all the time. Remember Ecclesiastes 7.20? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And we've seen over and over in human history what happens when people get power and instead of using it to bless, they use it to serve themselves at the expense of others. So we should celebrate and be glad that the king of the universe is perfectly righteous and just and equitable. And when King Jesus comes back, righteousness and justice and equity will triumph in his creation and all things will be set right. But this should also make us, if we've trusted in Christ and by grace we've been adopted into his family and we've become citizens of his kingdom, it should make us zealous for righteousness and justice and equity. Listen, this is going to be beautiful and invigorating, but also challenging for us no matter where we're coming from. You may have noticed that in American public life, traditionally, conservative folks talk a lot about personal responsibility and personal morality. And liberal or progressive folks talk a lot more about justice in the realm of the public sphere. Have you noticed that? And what the Bible says is that God cares about both. So if I care a lot about oppression and want it to stop out there, but I'm self-centered and unfaithful and self-gratifying and undisciplined and don't have integrity in my private life, that's not pleasing to God. And I'm also not going to bring justice into the world. On the flip side, if, if I care a lot about personal integrity and I don't cheat on my taxes and I tell the truth, and I always keep my word and I'm self-controlled sexually, but I'm indifferent or passive in the face of the suffering of oppressed human beings around me. That's not pleasing to God. God cares about both. Now, God in his grace is patient with us in our failings. But as we trust in Christ, he's inviting us to know him. And then in our words and in our actions to embody his kingdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. So that wherever we go, by the grace of God, there goes justice there goes truth. There goes integrity. There goes peace. There goes goodness. There's somebody who's going to stand up for what's right. Don't you want to be that kind of people, church? Next point. Psalm 99, if we ask it, what kind of king is God? It says, God is a relational king who speaks, listens, and responds to his people. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them and the pillar of cloud. He spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. So it's the psalm here is now singling out three individuals that you could read their stories in the Old Testament. You can read about Moses and Aaron, especially in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And of course, you can read about Samuel and first and second Samuel. But if you go read the lives of these individuals, you'll see lots of specific illustrations of what's being talked about here. These are people for whom God spoke to them. God called Moses by name. Moses, come to me when he spoke out of the mountain. God called Samuel by name at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And then they spoke to God. And God heard them and God responded. And there was a dialogue. There was an interaction. And they came to trust God because they knew that God loved them. They came to love God and to obey His commandments. Now, these individuals are being portrayed as an example for all of us. You can know God. You can listen to God speak in his word. You can pour out your heart to God in prayer. You can hear him respond 
The Holy Spirit can teach you to hear his voice as you read the scriptures and then you can walk in obedience and faithfulness. You can know God like this. Those individuals, Moses and Aaron and Samuel, all had a special role as mediators, as leaders who represented God to the people and the people to God. But what's glorious is that all of them were pointing forward to a much better mediator who came. What's his name? Everybody say it's all about Jesus. Let me read to you 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. It says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the bridge. Jesus is the bridge between humanity and God, the only bridge we need, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That means because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, if you trust him, you can have an unmediated relationship with God. You don't need to go through me to get to God. You don't need to go through any parent or pastor or priest to get to God. Now, the point here is that we don't is not that we don't need leaders or we don't need community. We do need these things, don't we? Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, I need you. God wants us to walk in community. But what it's saying is that you can also go to God directly. You can learn to hear his voice as he speaks to you in a personal way. You can respond with faith and obedience and worship. Let's review. God is the king over all nations, all peoples, every ethnic group. God is the king over all creation, all the realm of nature and invisible spiritual powers. God is a holy king. He's a king who loves and practices justice, righteous and equity. He's a relational king. And here's the last one. God is a king who defeats evil, but who offers forgiveness to evildoers. Look with me at verse eight. Oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. You are a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Them here is referring back to Moses, Samuel and Aaron. But as this reflection upon the king's relationship with his people continues, we're emphasizing he's an avenger of evil and he's a forgiving God. Now, what I want to say to you right now is that both halves of that statement are really good news. Both half of those halves of those statements. It's good news that the all-powerful king of the universe hates evil and promises to overcome evil. Sometimes that bothers us, but friends, do you want to live in a universe where the king is okay with evil continuing? You want to live in a universe where racism continues forever? And the painful legacy of trauma it has left with us? You want to live in a world where greed continues forever? Where child abuse continues forever. I'm looking forward to the return of Jesus because when Jesus comes back, racism and greed and child abuse are over forever. Or let's make it personal. Christian, if you're following Jesus day by day, you're battling sin. Have you found that to be easy? No. Some of you, I know you're fighting the fight against whatever your thing is. Some of you are battling an addiction to a substance. Some of you are battling greed or pride or selfishness or lust. You've got these deeply ingrained habits and you're fighting and you're fighting, but sometimes it feels overwhelming and sometimes you feel like giving up. And I want to say in the name of Jesus, don't give up because by the grace of God, Jesus is going to win. And if you hold fast to him by grace, he's going to hold fast to you. Not only is he going to bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom, but there's going to be a day where you don't even want to do any of that self-destructive stuff anymore. Your whole heart is just filled with love for God and love for people. And everybody else's heart is filled with that, too. 
That's the triumph of King Jesus. It's good news that he's going to defeat evil. But it's also really, really, really good news that he offers forgiveness to evil people. Because as I just indicated, and as we've said over and over, the line between good and evil does not lie between us and the people we like and everybody else. It goes right through the middle of all of our hearts. And if God, the King, and His justice and holiness came and said, I'm just going to defeat evil right now, that would have been bad news for me the day before I found Christ. If we ask the question, how long, O Lord? Why do you wait? Why don't you come wipe out all the evil right now? It's a hard question. There's a lot of mystery in the universe. And if the book of Ecclesiastes has taught us anything, it should be that we should be okay with saying, I don't know. There's a lot that I don't know the answer to, but we get one little indication of the answer to that question in Second Peter chapter 3 when it says, God is patient with you. The church was struggling with, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't He come back to set everything right? And Peter says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Which means, as a Christian, I cry out, Jesus, come back. I want you to heal the world. I want you to make my own soul right. But I'm also glad that He didn't come back before I got to know Him. And as we wait, it feels like a long time now, but 10 million years from now, when we look back, it will not feel like it was a long time. As we wait for the very short time before Jesus comes back, we get to proclaim the gospel, which says God is going to defeat evil, but you don't have to go down with that ship. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you could be forgiven. You could be forgiven. Come to him. Now, I want to end today by saying we've been celebrating that God is king and talking about what kind of king he is. And I want to ask, how do we respond? And I'm just going to be really simple right now. How do you respond? By loving Trusting, worshiping, and obeying King Jesus. Love Him. Trust Him. Worship Him. And obey Him. He's the King. Come to Jesus for salvation. If you're here and you don't know if you're right with God, the Gospel says the King gave His life for you so you can be forgiven. You don't have to earn His favor. Just come to Him in faith today. Say, forgive me. Transform me. I want to follow you now. And He will do it. And then come talk to one of us. We want to talk to you about how to continue on your spiritual journey. But for Christians who have been knowing God for a long time, the answer is still the same. Every day, come to King Jesus for grace and for guidance and say, Jesus, teach me how to live all of my life under the authority of your glorious kingdom. Teach me how to reflect your character in all my words, all my attitudes, and all my decisions. Another simple way we could put this is turn from sin. Turn from sin and come to Jesus. As Chauncey mentioned a moment ago, this is the season of Lent. And as Chauncey also mentioned, Lent is a season in which Christians practice fasting, emptying ourselves of some things, even good things that are gifts of God so that we'll learn to be satisfied in God alone. It's a season of spiritual preparation for Holy Week, for Good Friday and Easter. It's a season of self-examination and repentance and battling sin. And friends, if you have sin on your life, I, I just want to tell you, sin is not worth it. Sometimes sin makes you happy for a short time, but it gets worse and worse and worse if you continue in it. Sin destroys hearts, it destroys families, it destroys communities, it destroys churches. It's not worth it. Fight against your sin. But I also want to say to you this. Having tried to walk with Jesus for a while and tried to help other people walk with Jesus, we need to look our, 
our sin directly and battle our sin directly. But we also need to recognize this. I have found that the best way to battle out of control desire is to replace it with a desire for something better. And what I want to say to you now is you're going into Lent. We're not just saying get rid of all the bad stuff so you can be a good person. What we're really trying to say is that God is a good and glorious king. And once you know God, you'll, you'll be like, why did I ever want to do that stuff? And when you learn to taste the goodness of God and to be satisfied with his steadfast love morning by morning, sin will lose its power little by little. And we can say with Paul, I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived yet. But by the grace of God, I'm farther along the journey than I used to be. And I'm going to keep pressing. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and we praise you for your goodness. You are a wonderful king. In this moment, we acknowledge God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, that you are the Holy One and you're the king of all creation. We submit to your authority. Lord, if there's anything in us that's not pleasing to you, please be gracious and merciful with us and help us to give our hearts completely to you right now. And as we go to the Lord's table, I pray for a renewed awe, renewed wonder at your majesty and grace. In Christ's name, amen.